0: As we uh, come towards the end of the second day of uh, full practice just taking some time to, to really appreciate taking some time to really appreciate all of your efforts so far I find it very, um, very moving to hear about uh, all of the different experiences people have been working with, going through, responding to. It's a a beautiful thing, I think, to come on retreat Uh, and it's also not always easy. Um, I've often said to people, you know, interesting, we'll talk about it more tomorrow but what you say to people after a retreat and when I used to go back to work, people said, Oh, you went on retreat, didn't you? That must have been relaxing. And I was about to sort of launch into some speech about, well, you know, there were moments of relaxation and moments of difficulty and moments of seeing clearly and moments of not wanting to be there and moments of, you know, stillness and... So, you know, roller coaster is one way of thinking about it. And uh, just a reminder, really, that this is really part of the territory of being on retreat. And uh, it takes some courage to really be with that process and and really taking time to appreciate that. And also the sense that we mentioned on the first evening that that the fruits and the benefits of that are not for you alone. I mentioned to someone in in one of the the groups, uh, there's an often repeated story of mine, but how once I was meditating before work and spent the whole session having an argument with someone. (laughs) And I remember thinking at the end of it, you know, finish that thing. And and my, my thought was, oh my goodness, this is hopeless. I've been doing this for years and this is what my meditation is like. And then I went to work and saw the person with whom I'd been having this argument in my mind and I was genuinely quite different with him. I wasn't just, you know, through gritted teeth smiling, good morning. But something had moved, something had shifted. And so we can never quite know what a so-called good meditation or a bad meditation or whatever is. And if you've been sitting with something very difficult today, that can really change that perspective on that. Perhaps something has been processed, perhaps something has been seen, perhaps there's more space around something. And so then, after all of your efforts, we come to the evening talk and the responsibility for us teachers is to think what would be helpful, what would be useful and so um, I wanted to share some reflections um, if you like from another direction from the talk that Jenny um, was uh, speaking uh, speaking about last night which is more from the direction of um, MBCT mindfulness-based cognitive therapy and it seems to me that we're in, in a fascinating time, we're doing these practices in an extraordinary time, where in my mind, I'm doing almost three different things at once, or I'm interested in three different things at once. So in many ways, um, secretly actually quite a hardcore Buddhist. <laughs> Uh, you know, I I absolutely love the Buddhist tradition, and uh, you know the particular affinity to the Theravada Buddhist tradition, and the robes and the chants and the bowing and the statues, and I love it. And I also love, you know, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. This uh, deeply compassionate attempt a more than attempt, uh, you know, um, project of taking some of that wisdom, some of that understanding and see how can that be helpful for people in the 21st century world, and in particular with MBCT, people struggling with recurrent depressions, a particularly intense form of what we Buddhists would call dukkha struggle, And I'm really moved by the compassionate motivation behind that. Um, it's, you know, it's one thing for these practices to be, you know, for a niche crowd, the Gaia house crowd, whatever, Amaravati crowd. But actually there's also many, many people for whom this can be beneficial. And so for me I love that sense of uh, you know, the compassionate motivation to see what's helpful. And so then we're in a time of I think very, very rich dialogue. You've got different schools of thought, different systems, You know, empirical psychology, debating, influenced by Buddhist uh, philosophy teachings, psychology, um, different worlds meeting, the world of the health service, world of Buddhist centers, world of universities and so you've got this interesting conversation happening and I, feel, I do feel in a rather happy place because I, I sort of have a, a foot in different camps so that feels quite nice, you know yeah. it feels to me that some of those differences and differences of perspective are actually really creative so we can really think, you know, from all of these different perspectives what this, this is about and one place where it's very often said that they meet is this deeply human question of how can we find freedom from suffering? You know, that, that's the motivation. How can we find freedom from suffering? What does that mean? So, I thought I'd speak a little bit about what's called the Driven Doing Mode in MBCT, Um, and is contrasted to what's sometimes called the Being Mode, but there's seven aspects of a shift that mindfulness practice is helping us to make. And uh, in a couple of these, again, I'll make some links to the Buddhist psychology that Jenny was speaking about yesterday. But my intention here actually is to offer some quite personal reflections on these things. So it's not so much a theoretical talk, I mean hopefully you can find that somewhere else if you're really interested in the seven aspects of the driven doing mode. There are lots of books we could point you to, and maybe we will tomorrow. And so I'm not, I hope this doesn't sound like the final truth on the driven doing mode and the being mode. These are some of my own quite personal reflections of working on these in my own life. And this lovely phrase we sometimes use, I offer these thoughts for your reflection. So I'll share some of my personal reflections in the hope that they may stimulate and uh, be some nourishment for your own process of understanding your own heart and mind. That's always the case with all of these teachings. It's very nice if someone else has worked it all out, but in a sense we've got to, each of us do it ourselves, find our own way through these things. So as I mentioned, there are seven pairs, and uh, the first of these pairs is to move from what is called autopilot, to being able to make more conscious choices in our lives. So uh, there's a lovely story in in this book about Autopilot, the frantic world book that many of you may know. Uh, It says, uh, one evening, Alex trudged slowly up the stairs to his bedroom. He was still mulling over his day's work as he undressed and put on his night clothes. His thoughts hopped from subject to subject. Soon they latched onto a job he needed to do out of town the following afternoon. before dithering over the best way to get there by car to avoid the road the roadworks, Oh, the car. He remembered his car insurance was due for renewal. He'd use his credit card tomorrow. Ah, oh, but the credit card. Had he remembered to pay his credit card bill? He thought so. He remembered the printed bill with items reserving hotel rooms for next July's big event. Before he'd even realized it, he was thinking of his daughter's upcoming wedding. Alex! shouted his wife. Are you ready yet? We're all waiting and it's time to go. With a start, Alex realized he'd gone upstairs to change for a party, not for bed. Alex isn't suffering from dementia, nor does he have a particularly poor memory. He'd simply been on autopilot, his mind having been hijacked by his current concerns. It's a problem we're all familiar with, Have you ever set off for a friend's house only to find yourself taking the the road to work instead? Or started peeling potatoes only to realize that you'd intended to cook rice this evening? Habits are frighteningly subtle, yet can be incredibly powerful. Without warning, they can seize control of your life and drive you in a direction totally different from that you'd intended. If you can recognize that sense of one thing leading to another, leading to another, leading to another, this sort of proliferation of thoughts he had that took him away from what was actually at hand when our minds are hijacked, we jump from one thing, one thing, to another thing. And uh, I think there is in a very real sense a link to what Jenny was talking about last night, about Vedana. It can happen, so seeing something pleasant or seeing something unpleasant can lead to a chain and more and more and more builds on it. So in one of the groups today, someone was asking me a little bit about Vedana, and I was just in the library. So you could just, I was just there, so I could just do it. I said, okay, well, what would be pleasant for me here? And I noticed a rather lovely Buddha statue on top of one of the bookcases. And when we simply notice pleasant Vedana, that's fine, ah, it's lovely, beautiful, nice golden Thai Buddha. But what happens when it, takes over from that wow could I get one like that as soon as I get home tomorrow I'm searching on internet how will I make sure I get exactly that one better take a photograph of it but I'm not allowed to use my phone I'm gonna do it there'll be time tomorrow to do that I really need that particular buddha statue that would look so great at home and then we might be really off you know uh, or again, just in that particular library, we're looking at the, uh, the ceiling and there was a very slight crack in the ceiling. Unpleasant Vedana. And you can see when autopilot really kicks in, we're not noticing that, that might lead to all kinds of other things. God, how long's that been there? That's going to be a problem. I've got all that at home. I'm not going to be able to fix it. Oh. oh, it's okay, we'll fix it. I'll get a guy around. Oh yeah, but what if he rips me off and I don't know who to say? to ask someone at work who the best person to recommend is. And I don't know if you recognize these patterns of thought, these trains of thought, but sometimes things are really just taking us away, away, away. And so the now contemplation is, ah, it's just pleasant. Pleasant, Buddha statue, unpleasant, crack on the ceiling, come back. So autopilot is one of the things that can really hijack us in that sense. Um, I've noticed uh, one day I noticed I was just walking out of my street and, and past the, the newsagent there was a headline of the news and then I walked past that and then waited you know, I was waiting for the bus and I don't know about sort of ten minutes later I realised I wasn't in a great mood and it was interesting because you know half an hour later I'd been feeling fine and I just saw and traced it back ah oh, okay, I was seeing that headline. To be honest, I can't even remember what the headline was, but it triggered something. Thoughts about something else. Thoughts about something else triggered thoughts about something else, and something else again. And the whole process was happening quite automatically. And so sometimes to be able to do things automatically is very useful. You can tie your shoelaces without thinking about it. You can talk to a friend while you're driving a car. So this capacity to do things automatically is useful, but those times when we get hijacked by a train of thought, and for me the experience is a little bit like this, you know, just being pulled down into something. So then I remember waiting by the bus stop and thinking, ah, do I want to think about this now? Some element of conscious choice, where do I want to put my attention? So I was worrying about some particular thing, I hadn't decided to. I found myself doing it. Ah, okay. And then conscious choice. What do I want to do now? You could choose to notice the trees, the sky, to put those thoughts in a little more perspective, Yeah, a little more perspective. The question I love to contemplate is how much of my life or how much of our lives is driven by habit? And when we're on autopilot, we're on habitual mode. You can play with this contemplation. I said earlier, this is something we can turn to again and again. But you might think about breakfast. Is your breakfast habitual? Have the same thing every day. If you work, is your route to work the same every day? Habits of the mind, bodily habits, habits of speech. You can just notice, sometimes it can be... Um, yeah, it would be quite sobering to realize how much of the way we do things is simply the way we've always done it. We're in a kind of groove, we're in a kind of groove. So mindfulness again, that capacity to notice the impulse, to do things and to be free not to be driven by the impulse. This is why we do walking meditations. Remember I was saying yesterday, we're doing the walking meditation, walking backwards and forwards, and then the impulse arises, oh, I want to go and look at that, it's much more interesting. But the exercise helps us to begin to see the impulse as it comes and goes, without necessarily needing to be driven by it. There's a freedom there, moving from being uh, compulsive activity. some freedom, second of these things I wanted to talk a little bit about was uh, the move from analysing to sensing. Analyzing in this sense, I don't think it means sort of helpful uh, analysing that's very practical and useful, but the habit of our mind that feels like it needs to work something out. And one thing I've noticed time and time again in in these kind of states of mind is that there can be a kind of fake, what I would see as a sort of fake or um, questionable sense of urgency. I need to think and work this out now. And there's a kind of uh, attempt to think our way out of particular problems and difficulties. Uh, One of the ways this can become problematic is, say, if we're feeling sad or low. So we all feel sad and low from time to time, it's a normal human emotion sort of thing that comes and goes. But sometimes we can get really caught by that and try and analyse, well, why do I feel so sad? They don't feel so sad, I shouldn't be feeling sad, okay, I need to think about this and work it out. And then we start bringing to mind all the other times we've felt sad and all the memories and then there might be a story about why we're the kind of person that always feels sad and everyone else gets it worked out. But the analysing, the trying to think it through and work it out, is appearing to be the solution when it may be very much part of the problem, <laughs> if we put it like that. yeah. Um, I, I notice sometimes there are problems in my mind that are insoluble. If you've ever had that feeling, that the, the whole way you're thinking about it means there is no solution. You're wondering whether you do A, wondering whether you do B, and the mind jumps from one to the other. Great, it's A. I'm gonna do A and that'll be fine. Trying to think it all through, work it all out. Oh yeah, but I'll miss out on B. Don't worry, I'll do B then. That'll be good. Oh no, 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 I should do A. And then sometimes we wake up to the fact that it's a state of mind, a state of mind in which the thoughts spin around and nothing's quite right, nothing quite works. And so we realize what's skillful is to do something that, that shifts the underlying space in which the thinking is happening. In which case, we then might say, Yeah, I could do A, could do B. It's probably not the end of the world either way. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So rather than analyzing, very often uh, the invitation is to sense, to feel what's in the body. And one way I've thought about this is that our emotions, our emotions are not problems to be solved which it can sometimes feel like when we're in that analytical mode. Okay, well, why do I feel like this? I've got to work it all out in my mind, come up with a story and a solution and fix it. It's much more, no, I can feel this. What's it like to feel sadness, grief, fear, anger, frustration? And uh, very often I feel this is an important part of our practice, to give ourselves space to feel. Um, We've been talking around how mindfulness is not a cold and detached quality. It's not about sort of being completely distant and indifferent to things. Sometimes it's about feeling things more deeply. And very often when we feel things deeply, they can move through. They can move through. I've had many times when feeling grief or feeling sadness is a kind of relief, actually. If you've had that experience where there's something going on in your life and it's like you're not quite in contact with it and it all feels a bit agitated and then, ah, I'm really upset. And you touch the sense of being upset and it moves. It moves. But this is around sensing, feeling things in the body, sensing, not necessarily needing to work it all out. The uh, third of these aspects is to move from striving to accepting. And so you may notice that again on this retreat, this is why it's lovely to give this talk after two days of practice because you've got lots of things to reflect upon. But you might think back in this last two days, those moments of striving to have a different experience than the one you're having, were those moments of striving also moments of struggle. I mean, here there's a really close link again to the Buddhist psychologist, what we call the second noble truth, the link between that craving, the, the wish for it to be different. Notice that. Again, all of the things that come up on retreat, maybe you've felt very sleepy sometimes. Is the struggle in the sleepiness or in the resistance to the sleepiness? What's it like when you feel sleepy and think, right, I'm going to strive to get a different experience, I don't want this one. I want that bright, bright experience with a clear mind that I had the other day, come on. You know, the very resistance pushing, we notice that can create a sense of of struggle. Striving to have a different experience to the one that we're having, Interestingly, sometimes I've experienced this almost as a kind of violence. It's a strong word, but almost it feels like that. It's like, yeah, this is what my heart and mind is doing now. But I don't want this. I want something else. And so noticing that, what does that feel like when we're in that place? I want something else. I mean, even as I'm doing it, my body's kind of tensing to say that, not this. So we're moving from from striving to, you know, a sense of acceptance and as we often emphasize on these eight-week courses, acceptance doesn't mean passivity Uh, you know, this kind of acceptance we're speaking about is a place from which we can make wise choices wise changes, wise decisions I wanted to just tell you another little uh, reflection of mine on acceptance because it was a very significant piece of learning for me and it's an example I mentioned many times and I think the reason I come back to it is because it was a moment in my own life of seeing something so clearly uh, that it's always stayed with me um, but I, I shall tell you their the story and then just relate how this relates to acceptance but i was on a train uh, near birmingham new street station i don't know if you know that but i to me that's quite a significant part of the story because it's one of the busiest railway stations in in the uk and there are loads of platforms they're quite underground the ceilings a bit low and uh, i was going to get off the train it was a very very busy train i was going to change trains and uh, it stopped and i just kind of wasn't, I guess I must have edged a little bit close to the man in front of me. And in my mind, see, I didn't know he was getting off. And for those of you, I'm in London, say, you know, used to this thing of edging past people on the tube to get off, and things like edging a little bit closer to him. And anyway, he turned around and said, hang on, mate, we're all getting off. And I thought, oh. And it triggered, it was a very interesting thing to notice what happened in my mind because it triggered quite a thing. So it triggers, what? oh, that's really unfair. I wasn't pushing in. I just didn't know you were getting off. Or, you know, I'm a nice guy. I'm a meditation teacher. You know, I'm not the sort of person that pushes in. I mean, you know, and, and oh, what's going on? So it's quite an animal sense of being threatened, gets triggered, yeah? And here's where the story gets interesting for me because the next thought was something like, oh, don't let it bother you, don't let it bother you, you know it's okay, it's just something, don't let it bother you. And then I noticed that the thoughts were still there, ah, this is unkind, I didn't like that. And the liberating thought for me in that situation was I am bothered. (laughs) I honestly can't tell you how freeing this was for me. It was like, oh yeah, okay, I am bothered. And in that moment, there was a sense of really accepting, not just the situation, but the sense that it had triggered something in me, the, the speeded up heart rate, the, you know, the to shoulders, the repetitive thoughts that we get. And the whole thing moved through in about 30 seconds or a minute. And I've really found that significant. So when we talk about acceptance, sometimes that can lead to a sort of rather idealistic view. I'm not gonna let anything bother me. Well, good luck. It seems to me that the acceptance is noticing, also accepting that we are sensitive beings. So we can sense that at quite an early stage and then perhaps what it may have grown into. I mean there have been other occasions something like that might have ruined my whole day. It's interesting. And perhaps again to link it to what Jenny was talking about yesterday, it might be an example of spotting something at quite an early stage. Oh, this is just unpleasant, including the thoughts and feelings that have been triggered. It's unpleasant, but that's it. The um, next of these uh, shifts is from seeing thoughts as solid and real uh, to seeing thoughts as mental events. Um, the central idea I find interesting here, again, this is, my, this is a bit idiosyncratic, this phrase, so, um, but it, I almost see thoughts as something like symptoms of a mood or a state of mind, or expressions of a mood or a state of mind. So if you, if you notice this, that the the thoughts that are going through your head, these automatic thoughts, they're like, um, how can I put it really? They're like the surface level expression of a mood or a state of mind. So you can begin to see thoughts in that way. Um, Once I was here for a long retreat and I remember... um, you know, saying to, to the teacher, I've had a, I was doing walking meditation and the thought arose, um, I've had a really good year. And uh, she said, ah, that indicates some degree of rapture in the mind, you know, the quality, some degree of kind of energy, enthusiasm, interest. And I've always been really interested in, in, in what she said then. So from just reporting a single thought, like I've had a really good year, it's an indication of the kind of state of mind that was there. Seeing this helps us not to believe our thoughts quite as much. Again, I said this on the first evening and it's even more helpful to say it now, but how many different states of mind have you experienced over the last 48 hours? In, and And how did they express themselves in different thoughts? I mean, these are you know we, we repeat these again and again, because they're classic repeat ones, but yeah, I wish I'd signed up for three months, to "I wish I'd never come," to "Ah, this is wonderful, I must tell all my friends," or "I'm going to complain to." I mean, there are just so many different thoughts that pass through our mind. But to see that they're expressing an underlying mind state, an underlying mood, and we can tune into that, it's really, really helpful. And to be able to see this more and more in the moment, I mean, I'm increasingly noticing now when I have thoughts like, oh, where's my life going? I need a five year plan, I need to get everything together, I haven't done this, I haven't done that, you know, I need a good sleep. (laughs) It's really interesting that those thoughts are, you know, I don't need to take them quite so seriously because they're coming from a particular state of mind and triggered perhaps from tiredness, you know, being hungry, whatever. So to get more perspective on thoughts is so helpful. And we notice, again, and the eight-week courses really emphasise this, don't we, that when we are stressed out, when the reactivity is strongly triggered, that our thoughts have a different quality to them. They might be much more black and white. They might be over-generalising. It's deeply liberating to begin to see this more and more in our own experience as it happens. I think, I mean, excuse these phrases, I don't often use them, but uh, in my understanding, in a sense, this is really quite an advanced practice. <laughs> to be, to, for a, a reactive state of mind to be present, and to be able to see it there and then, it's very hard, actually. <laughs> because it's telling you, at the, the, the mind state is telling you, no, this isn't just a state of mind, it's this person, and they need to be told. <laughs> it's quite difficult to say, ah, yeah this is the state of mind and our patterns of thought are very closely related into our patterns of speech and again this is my I, I think about this every day i love this but you notice when your patterns of speech go into always and never you're always letting me down you never do anything to help And it's worth knowing that this is what all of our minds do in a particular mode when we're reactive when we're stressed our thinking becomes more black and white this is you know happens to us all so it's not like oh i'm a terrible person because i have black and white thinking that would be another black and white thought (laughs) you know personalizing one is me it's my problem but certain states of mind generate thinking that's much less nuanced much more black and white So I like to play with this really, you know, imagine I I like to have a fictitious argument with someone. You know a real argument is, you never do this, you're always doing that. So in my fictitious argument we don't say that, we say something like, "Ah, I acknowledge that in many occasions in the past you've been very helpful to me, but on this one particular occasion I'm mildly disappointed and I'd really appreciate it if you might just consider to do something slightly different. But of course we can't quite do that because when we're an in inner thing, it's you. <laughs> yeah. So but the, the liberating thing here is to see that these are patterns and to be able to recognize these states of mind when we're there, we're more likely to catch ourselves a little more quickly. I was listening to Tara Brack, who's a very uh, senior teacher in this tradition, and she's describing how her practice has changed her over the years, and she says it's not that she doesn't get into those states of mind, but that she recovers more quickly, and more able to see that more quickly. Yeah. I'm fascinated by ways to work with thoughts, and particularly the difficult thoughts that occur when we're triggered. And uh, again, just a reminder, or if you haven't heard this, but that there are actually some different ways to work with thoughts. Um, In the um, cognitive behavioral therapy, and people are often encouraged to write the thoughts down so you might try and catch what these automatic thoughts are. And they do tend to be quite, you know, more black and white, a bit more extreme, like this is always going wrong, this is terrible, this is a nightmare, I can't believe this is happening, it's always going to be like this, those kind of thoughts. And once you've caught them, as in written them down on paper, you can then reflect on um, evidence for and evidence against, And you you might write those down and then you come to a a more balanced thought. What I wanted to just share, again from my own experience of doing this, I mean I guess share two things really. One is that sometimes these are recommended for people with um, uh, depression or anxiety. I'm very interested in the idea that this is a useful exercise for all of us. (laughs) Unless you're a person that never gets caught in reactivity. In which case, well done. But for the rest of us, <laughs> I notice when something triggers me, it's actually really, a really helpful exercise to get more perspective on thoughts. And the thing that I, I've really learned, again, a real shift for me, was in the stage of looking for evidence for those difficult thoughts. That well, might sound strange, because I think when I first heard this, I, you know, I, I just went straight for, okay, you're supposed to challenge your thoughts. It's not so bad after all, there'll be other ways to do it, blah, blah, blah. Interestingly, I found it so helpful to pause on, the, on that moment of evidence for. And I've reflected a lot on why this is, and it feels to me that something in doing that, there can be a sense of listening to what's hurt. Go back to my early example, you never help me out. I don't know if you've had a conversation like this, but it's not, if someone says that to you, it's not terribly helpful to say to them, oh by the way I did help you out two weeks ago. That usually brings a very strong response, in my experience. (laughs) And why does that bring a strong response? Because you haven't heard that underneath that you never help me out, is a cry, I'm hurt, I'm vulnerable, and I really need some help. That's what's underneath that. So to take it at the literal level, actually I did two weeks ago, you're you're wrong, (laughs) it's not very helpful. So both in how we relate to others and how we relate to ourselves, there's something about sensing, listen, you know, underneath what we might call a more reactive state of mind or whatever, there's some vulnerability. Listening to that, there's something that needs to be heard. And, and so I have found t- touching into that in many ways, it can be on the level of thoughts. Yeah, there is some evidence for my thought, <laughs> whatever it is. Okay, something needs to be heard here. Very often again in our practice we sense that in the body, to feel what's underneath, to feel what's underneath. And uh, as you may know, in, in the MBCT, in the mindfulness courses, again we can certainly use those strategies of writing down thoughts and things, but also the, the sense of the liberating power of just recognising, ah, this is simply a thought, this is simply a thought. And sometimes then we don't even need to get into challenging, changing, whatever it's the move from believing the things that arise in our mind to recognizing it's just a thought. This is so liberating to see this. I, I, I you know, again sometimes people say, ah, oh, these mindfulness courses. If you can really see, <laughs> if you really see the nature of thought, it's a big deal. And I don't mean we just see it once and once only, but to see it more and more and more. It can literally be a lifesaver. I've spoken to people again, and you might be a thought like, you know, I have nothing to look forward to. That's a heavy thought to have pop into your mind. It's always going to be like this, I have nothing to look forward to. And the capacity to see, that's a thought. That's a thought. It's coming out of a low low mood. It's making it appear like that. And the move from I have nothing to look forward to to it seems as if I have nothing to look forward to. The at seems as if, it seems as if is deeply freeing. It's really profoundly freeing. Another of uh, these uh, shifts is from uh, avoidance to approaching. And we may have uh, explored this many times in our uh, practice over these two days, in a particular area we might look at this in terms of painful sensations in the body, unpleasant sensations in the body. Sometimes that that feeling can be, ah, I don't want that, I shouldn't have that, I'm going to turn away. And it's very interesting and helpful to explore what happens when we turn towards that which is difficult, when we look at that which is difficult. So often in life we can find, ah, that's, that's freeing. Again, I don't know where the particular aches and pains in your body are. Shoulders are a good one for me. I'm one of these people, I, I, Anyway, this might be too much information, but I like going for sort of massages and things on my my shoulders, and uh, the people doing it always say, "Oh my goodness, you're very tense." You know, sometimes they give me loads of thoughts. It's like (laughs) I feel worse afterwards. (laughs) Fifteen minutes of somebody telling you what a stress ball you are—god, never massage anybody as tense as you. you (laughs) So anyway, I tend to have these quite tense uh, shoulders, but if you really again notice that. What's it like to turn towards that? Feeling, ah, I've got this tension, I don't like it, I need to get away. And sometimes we can say, ah, it's simply unpleasant sensation. And that becomes a doorway to explore, is that solid? Is it fixed? Pay closer attention, it moves, it shifts, it changes, it pulses. It's not some sort of solid thing, I have stiff shoulders, end of story. It moves. How does it change when the relationship to it changes? Can I be interested in this? Is the struggle in the pain in the shoulders or in the relationship to it? And then we're into one of the most profound lessons in life, actually, is the struggle in the situation or in the relationship to it? So by exploring the shoulders, I can explore my relationship to difficulty in all of life. When the train's late, it's the struggle in the train being late, or in my reaction to it. When the food is not quite what we wanted, is the struggle in the food, or in the reaction to it. I could go on, but you get the idea. Yeah? So life is giving us pleasant, unpleasant, pleasant, unpleasant, pleasant, unpleasant. You can see your whole day as a, as a succession of pleasant and unpleasant. I give it when I'm teaching the eight week course. I always give this example of that really. That for many of us, first thing in the morning, first thing that happens is unpleasant. Alarm goes off beep, 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 beep. <laughs> Second thing that happens might be pleasant for many of us shower. Lovely oh, warm shower. Nice warm water. Go downstairs, gonna get a cup of tea. Somebody's drunk all the milk. Unpleasant. No milk for the tea. Scream up the stairs who's drunk all the milk? voice comes back oh don't worry there's more at the back of the fridge pleasant go out of the house wait for the bus bus is late unpleasant get on the bus Ah, oh, there's an old friend how are you pleasant anyway you get the idea but you can see you can break it down even more and more than that as you see you can see life pleasant unpleasant pleasant unpleasant pleasant unpleasant And as Jenny said yesterday, good luck in trying to create eternal, pleasant sensation. You know, we recognize this practice, actually that, we might have tried to do that, but that's a struggle. So our practice in our life appears to be how can we find some balance, balance within the pleasant and the unpleasant. How can we meet both, find some peace? Um, the next one of these is, is uh, mental time travel. and uh, This is, as Jenny said yesterday, this is one of the things everybody knows about mindfulness. It's about the present moment, coming back into the present moment, noticing how much we can be driven by thoughts of past and future taken away. So just to mention this one very briefly, the question I find really useful is what is happening now? What is happening now? See, as I'm saying that, there's quite a, I'm deliberately bringing in some degree of kind of, what's happening now? And to have that question as one we can ask ourselves can reveal the dreamlike nature of some of the stories we can be lost in. Have you notice that sometimes in these last couple of days you may have been sitting here and there's a real drama going on. They said this, this said that, this is terrible, this is going to go on. Can't, you know, it's all just spinning and zooming and sometimes, okay, open the eyes, I'm in Gaia House, what's happening now? And it can really just show, gosh, there was a whole story and storm there that's sustained and created by by thought. Yeah, so there can be a real sort of sword of wisdom kind of thing. Okay, come through, okay, now. And of course that doesn't mean there aren't real challenges in life that we can then go and look and, and see. But a retreat is a wonderful opportunity to see how that can become just such a, you know, lost in this, storm of thought. And uh, the final one of these is um, the move from doing things that are more depleting to things that are more nourishing. Like so many things on the eight-week courses, as you can tell, I'm a big fan, by the way, (laughs) of these eight-week courses, it's something that starts off sounding, okay, that's quite a simple idea, I get that to, for me, just being an ongoing, deepening investigation I find really quite profound. So again, a reminder of the basic sense is a depleting thing, is something that makes you feel less able to cope, less balanced, um, less able to deal with things and something nourishing, you know, more able to, um, yeah, be, feel okay, nourished, um, replenished, you know and so a very easy way into getting getting this I mean for me my number one paradigm of a nourishing activity is having a warm soak in a bath for me that's a lovely thing you know put the put the bath on nice warm water relax and the you know a more depleting thing might be say a very very difficult meeting that we would not been looking forward to or you know Dealing with difficult emails. That's the basic idea. So then you, you look at your life and you look at the balance. And if, if life is all emails and no hot baths, it's a difficult place. Yeah? So that's the basic thing. So when you start looking at this, you can look at it in different ways. And, and one level of this is to think which activities we do. So you have more baths and look at emails a bit less. <laughs> okay? So That's the kind of basic uh, level of it. Um, and but also you know, be sensitive to the effect of different kinds of activities on mood, they're very useful. As we look into it more and more, there's also the question of, of how, and I found this deeply fascinating, what is it, the things that are on my depleting list, what is it about them that makes them depleting? And is there some way I could do them differently that might make them Nourishing. I really encourage this to be an ongoing question for you. You know, have a look at what it is that you think, oh, that's definitely something really awful. And you could look into it more and more and more and think, well, where is the struggle here? I'm going to give you a very, very everyday example. You couldn't get more every day. <laughs> but one for me was mowing the lawn. I don't know why, but for some reason there was just thinking, thing, oh, mowing the lawn, I don't like doing that. That's a depleting thing. So I thought I'd look at it. And uh, these are my, my, uh, my lessons from mowing the lawn, let's see if it's helpful for you. But one of the, the first things that made it depleting was that I didn't give it enough time. So if, you, if you're trying to scram in a lot of things, you think mowing the lawn takes 10 minutes, and then you've got to rush through it. So I gave myself longer. I used to make myself a nice cup of tea before mowing the lawn. That's one of my nourishing things. Enjoying it, sitting with a cup of tea. And then it becomes a real mindfulness exercise. I'm mowing the lawn. Okay, It's nice. I'm standing, feet on the ground, breath in the body, feeling the lawnmower, just nicely doing it. And then at a certain stage, I start to rush and push and want to get it over with and be on to the next thing sensitive to that notice that okay stop pause it's just like walking meditation <laughs> you know maybe we should get you all on the lawns tomorrow lawn meditation. but it's a really good example if you're really sensitive pay attention any activity in the day becomes a very you know deeper and deeper things you can see into so what happens is you know my my i start to grip my shoulders get tense and the belief is i need a future moment This moment is not okay, because this is a moment full of something terrible called mowing the lawn and I've got to get it done, and then a good moment will arrive, watching my favorite program or whatever it is. And this is when it gets really deep, you could say, because actually this sense of projecting our peace and well-being into some future event This is a fundamental pattern that causes us to struggle. You know that feeling that happiness is always just round the corner, it's not now, it's the next thing. I can't be happy now because I've had so much on, but when I get to that retreat at Gaia House then, and then we're at the retreat at Gaia House and the knees ache and the teachers are going on. Ah, when the retreat finishes, when he rings the bell, then it'll be all right. And then, oh, you know, and you'll see tomorrow. I mean, this is a great contemplation. As if you're not, hopefully you're all aware, tomorrow is the end of the retreat. There can be a lot of projection into that. Ah, oh, you know, I'll be able to have pizzas again and wine and talk to my friends and oh, yeah, get out of this place and I'm walking around and hey, I'm going to play some music. And The thing that's really interesting is to continue your contemplation after the retreat. Uh, our friend Zoha, when, when uh, we were teaching with her a couple of weeks ago, she said, Really look at the thing you've been looking forward to. Maybe you've all had something now. Mine used to be hula hoops. You know, they're crisps. <laughs> I love it. I'm very proud of my unsophisticated tastes. You know, it wasn't uh, three course meals and things, but just ah. Because you don't get crisps at Guy House, do you? Terrible. So for those of us who like crisp, it's like, oh, hula hoops. I'll be at Newton Abbott Station, I'll go in there, there they are. And so you crunch into them, and they're salty and fatty. And <laughs> Sorry, that was too much of uh, acting there. I'll try and make the sound. But it's okay, it's nice. Mouthful of hula hoops, what does that trigger? More. Oh. Pleasant tastes almost always trigger that, don't they? You're eating it, and then it's just the impulse to have another one. Packet of hula hoops is gone. What's next? So the the very, again, see this again and again and again, that any time we're thinking happiness and well-being, peace, is not here, somewhere else, our whole practice is really questioning that because this is what keeps us spinning round and round and round. And even, I'm suggesting, mowing the lawn can be a doorway into that. You're doing a very everyday activity and noticing for some of it, you're just there, you're present, it's okay, and then there's that got to get it done, out of the way, and then. But then seems to be elusive. Yeah. So we can begin to, you know, from this contemplation on what's depleting, maybe what's really depleting is the pushing, forcing, projection into the future. And so actually that's a very liberating thought because it means in any moment we can let go of that. I love this phrase, it's already here, it's already here. Not as a metaphysical claim, what's the it, where is it, do I believe in that? But just seeing what that does, that phrase, it's already here. Maybe I don't need to wait to the end of the retreat to feel okay, or for my knee pain to go, or for the lawn mowing to be finished. Maybe in some way this moment can be a moment of peace too. Making peace with all moments, so taking time to be still, you sit together for a couple of minutes.